the Great Boomer Challenge. Today we're continuing two of the worst deceptions of the 20th century. We'll hear from Steve Randolph, who I'll introduce after I've concluded my interview with Jim McKillop. Thanks for joining us. I would have thought it started to get better. Right. We're dealing with the um, end of World War II. And um, we finally had seen um, certain segments of our armed forces um, allow the volunteering of black men to come into the U.S. armed forces. The Tuskegee Airmen, the special infantry um, divisions that were created. Folks that were ready to lay down their life for the United States, just like white boys were, too. So they came out of the war, and a bill that was created in Congress as the Servicemen's Readjustment Readjustment Act mm-hmm. was later known by you and me and everybody else and into the future as the GI Bill. And the GI Bill was a process of trying to take care and reassimilate those men, predominantly, and women, who served in our, our armed forces. There was a battle, Marla. There was a battle about where the administration of the GI Bill was going to take place. Was it going to be like the FHA and have a big old Washington office and everybody will will come out of Washington and tell all the people in all the different towns and cities what to do and then everybody get it done? Or was it going to be something that was going to be administered at the local area, at the state level, or at the city and county government? And there was a congressman with immense power from Mississippi that held up this legislation until it was agreed that the administration of the GI Bill, the actual process of helping GIs, was going to be administered at the state. That included college tuition, trade schools, um, low-cost loans for buying tools and things like that. Um, It had some housing characteristics in it, and it had unemployment insurance capabilities. So the Veterans Administration was stood up. FHA, Federal Housing Administration, was stood up from the, the first act of Congress during 1933. The... GI Bill stands up another organization called the Veterans Administration to administer the funds and flow of business um, to try to help our service people. Much like the um, FHA program, the VA loans are underwritten by the bank, 
I'm using that term broadly. It includes savings and loan or bank or credit union now, underwritten by the bank, and then ultimately um, reviewed by the VA and guaranteed. Somebody would stamp it and say it was a guaranteed piece of paper, a guaranteed loan. The banker thought it was a good loan anyway. But if I can get the stamp on it, then my examiners are going to say, oh, that, that's great. You can sell it to anybody and um, that'll help with your liquidity and, and uh, you'll be in, in much better shape. The crazy thing is the redlining didn't go away with the GI Bill mm-hmm. and the VA. Redlining was alive and well and operating as strongly in the 1945 to 1955 to 1960 arena as it was the first two years. An example, out of the three largest, excuse me, 13 largest counties in Mississippi in 1947, two, two people out of 3,200 loans that were approved. Now, to show you, we are a equal opportunity employer across the nation. New Jersey and New York. <clears throat> we're dealing with these same statistics from 1947. Less than 100 black people were given loans out of six over 67,000 loans in those two states. So, now I know we didn't have a horde of black men and women in the armed service of World War II, but doggone it, I know we had a lot more than two per state or a hundred per New York and New Jersey, they simply were not able to get access to that money because of rules, regs, or um, imputations of the local authorities that were there to pass out the money. Mm -hmm. Money that was designed to go to tuition, okay? Uh, The Northern universities, I'm talking about north of the Mason-Dixon line in this case, were quote-unquote full Mm -hmm. when there was an application for blacks. They found room for their white, uh, white applicants. The Southerners didn't even have to play that game. They simply denied access to those rules. It didn't matter whether you had the money to get to earn that trade. 95% of all the black service people that applied for tuition or trade money, 95% of them ended up having to go to the historically black colleges that existed in 1945 to 50. Mm -hmm. And um, if you go back in time, 
at that juncture, remember, we had just gone through the era where we had coupons to buy tires and to get gasoline and to get steel and, Lord forbid, getting a new car. Because we were fighting the war. And these black universities were not getting fiscal assistance at all, even when the number of enrollees started going up. So they were underfunded, (laughs) understaffed, Mm -hmm. and in most cases, non-accredited colleges. Many thanks to Jim for enlightening us on redlining and also beginning the discussion on the effects of the GI Bill on its ability or inability to generate wealth. My next guest is my husband, Steve Randolph. He's worked in the wealth management industry for 42 years. For the past 11 years, he's been a managing director at Oak Brook Solutions, a consulting firm that provides advice and guidance to the wealth management industry. Steve leads the strategic consulting team at Oak Brook, providing strategic planning, change management, product design, marketing, technology, and back office operations design for banks, insurance companies, and independent advisory firms. Steve developed his expertise while holding senior management roles at SunTrust Banks, Reliance Trust Company, and MassMutual. Those roles spanned a broad range of functional disciplines, including private wealth management, trust, wealth management technology and operations, retirement services, and business development. He was frequently tapped to initiate and lead major transformation efforts, including merger integrations, product design changes, technology selections and due diligence, platform conversions, and M&A support. Steve graduated summa cum laude with a BBA from the University of Georgia, earned his MBA from Georgia State University, and is a graduate of the ABA's National Graduate Trust School. He is a frequent conference speaker for the American Bankers Association and other financial industry organizations. Welcome, Steve. There's much discussion today about income inequality, the gap between the highest and the lowest earners. But we're also hearing about wealth inequality, and in particular, variations between white households and those of black Americans. What can you tell us about this condition? Well, Marla, there's really no debate about the statistic reality of income and wealth disparity. It's a phenomenon that crosses racial, ethnic, and gender categories. You've heard the old adage, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's more than just a catchy phrase. It's actually an accurate description of the current scenario in our country, which continues to worsen. But it's even worse when you look at the disparities between black and white households. For example, in 2016, the median level of wealth for black households was $13,640, compared to $142,180 for white households, less than 10% of the white value. 
if you go back further in time in 1992, that gap was actually narrower. Uh, black households had approximately 18.5% of the level of wealth as white households, but then it started to worsen, dropping down to 9.5% in 2016, nearly a 50% drop from its previous level. The other statistic, which I think is extremely concerning, is that slightly more than 25% of all black households have zero or negative wealth compared to 10% of white households. What are some of the contributors to that gap? I'd be glad to address that, but before we go further, let's define what we mean by wealth. When you think of wealth, what comes to mind? A vacation home at the beach? Uh, someone like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. Wealth is an excess of assets over liabilities or the value of what you own less the value of the debts that you owe. We tend to focus in our culture on higher values of wealth and what they look like, the uber-rich and not the more modest levels of wealth. If a family owns more than they owe and they earn more, than what they have to spend each month for living expenses, then they're able to generate wealth, albeit possibly a modest level of wealth. Building wealth is extremely important for families at all ends of the financial spectrum, but in particular for low and middle income households. Having net savings or reserves helps Americans weather a tough financial time such as the job loss that many experience due to the COVID pandemic, or whether they need to cover an unexpected medical expense, uh, their ability to invest in a home or a business, spend money on education for themselves or their families. So when we're talking about the importance of wealth generation here, we're not talking about the ability to buy a second home or retire when you turn 55 or to buy your own professional sports team. We're talking about building wealth to a level that relieves financial anxiety, that enables you to survive a downturn, or to invest in something that will help build even more wealth over time, such as your business or your own home, or to help pay for your child to get through college. For most people, building wealth takes place over a long period of time and is the result of a series of positive steps with hopefully very few negative steps backward. It takes hard work and discipline. And if we're honest with ourselves, a few lucky breaks typically come into play. For those of us who weren't smart or lucky enough to start Facebook or Amazon, our source of wealth tends to center on three main areas. Number one, buying a home in an area that appreciates over time. Secondly, starting a business and running it successfully. And thirdly, having a job with an employer who provides a retirement plan, contributing to that plan, and hopefully enjoying an employer match to your contributions. So what you're describing sounds like what we all know is the American dream. Our country is focused on providing equal opportunity for all to pursue those goals. But how is that played out in practice? Well, certainly providing a level playing field from this point forward is critical 
But it's important to know that for most families, creating even a modest level of wealth is the result of several generations of effort, along with equitable public policy and, frankly, some good luck along the way. There are certainly some people who pull themselves up by the bootstraps from nothing, but again, most of us have had some help. Let's pick back up on the topic of the GI Bill that Jim McKillop covered in the previous session. It's well known that the GI Bill was intended to provide exactly that type of help for returning servicemen and women after World War II. Jim discussed the creation of the VA and specifically the part of its charter that provided government backing for mortgages extended to veterans. As he explained, the practice of redlining started in the 1930s as an official component of FHA mortgage underwriting, limited mortgage lending to quote unquote undesirable areas, which was code at that time for black areas. This practice continued in the post-World War II era under the VA loan program, which was part of the GI Bill. Combined with other factors, such as restrictive covenants, most black veterans pursuing the American dream of home ownership were effectively blocked from buying a home or were limited to buying homes in areas which were increasingly becoming economically depressed. So what is the long-term impact of that practice? The impact on black veterans and their ability to build home equity was huge. Being limited to slow growth or no growth neighborhoods, assuming that they could even get a mortgage and buy a house, kicked out one of the major pathways to accumulating wealth for these families. And that deficiency in wealth impacted their ability to cover an unexpected financial event, help pay for their children's education. It had an impact over successive generations of their family. Let's then look at the education benefits under the GI Bill. The intent here was obviously to help return, the returning veterans re-enter the workforce with new or enhanced skills, which would make them more attractive to employers in the economic surge which happened after the war. Opportunities for blacks to enter predominantly white accredited colleges were limited or particularly in the South prohibited altogether by Jim Crow laws and policies. Even the trade schools were problematic. Many were controlled by white-led unions. Fortunately, the black community had established what we know as HBCs, or historically black colleges. But you can imagine that these institutions were often underfunded and lacked the endowments held by most private and public universities that served white students. HBCs fortunately stepped up to the plate and provided great educations for many black veterans who went on to succeed as scholars, engineers, teachers, lawyers, and business and government leaders that we know today. But they couldn't have accommodated every black veteran that wanted to go to college. And many were therefore not prepared educationally to compete for really good jobs, especially with those having solid salaries and pension benefits. The third leg of the GI Bill that failed to prop up black veterans as it did white veterans 
was in the area of unemployment benefits. Black employment opportunity was severely limited to only the most menial jobs at less than a subsistence wage level. Veterans declining those low-paying jobs were subsequently dropped from the unemployment benefit rolls. Now, this rule also applied to white veterans, but again, blacks were handicapped at the outset by historical job discrimination, which continued after the war. So many were forced to accept lower-paying jobs without benefits, which could foster wealth generation. So here again is another pathway that was blocked for black veterans. The opportunity for training for better paying jobs, jobs that enabled them to earn more than they needed for their current expenses so that they could save for their future needs. When I first heard of the GI Bill in high school U.S. history class back in the early 1970s, it was lauded as this great piece of legislation that both rewarded the sacrifice of our World War II veterans and helped jumpstart our return to a normal growing economy. So I've always had this very positive view of the GI Bill and what it accomplished. And while I am glad that Congress wanted to provide these benefits to veterans, I had no idea that black veterans were effectively blocked from taking full advantage of them simply due to their skin color. It's hard to imagine how a black serviceman or woman felt after devoting service to our country and the cause of freedom, often at the risk of their life, to come back and have these benefits dangled in front of them only to see them snatched away. As a white person, how do you reflect on these historical factors today now that you know more and how does it make you feel? You know, one might argue that We've eliminated redlining, although there is some evidence to the contrary, if not in policy, at least in practice. Um, or you might argue, argue that educational opportunities have been opened up. And we, of course, have laws that protect against um, employment discrimination. It's true that many black families have succeeded in building wealth, in some cases significant wealth, overcoming many obstacles. But the point I want to make here is that what happened decades ago is still having a cumulative impact on gaining wealth for a lot of these veterans and their families over several generations. Let me speak maybe also from a personal perspective here about this uh, multi-generational impact of wealth. I had a lucky break by being born into a family that had managed to build up a, a relatively modest level of wealth over several generations. Although my parents had financial struggles from time to time, I managed to get through college without any college loans due to some scholarships that I had earned, summer work, and because both my parents and my grandparents could contribute to the cost. My wife and I didn't make much uh, early in our marriage as a teacher and a bank teller, but we were able to start saving for a down payment for a home. We easily were approved for a mortgage. Our parents also pitched in, helping us with our down payment. And we sold that small first home for a really nice profit just a few years later due to an uptick in that local market in the Atlanta area. 
I had wide open employment and advancement opportunities at work. We were able to save more than we spent and saved enough over time to enable our kids to graduate from college debt-free. And so on it goes, a combination of hard work, a little luck, and a helping hand from family and others. So here's a few of my personal takeaways. First, those of us who have been able to accumulate even a modest amount of wealth should consider all of the factors that contributed to that success as well as the absence of factors that didn't serve as barriers. Hard work and discipline are key contributors to building wealth, but so are factors that are out of our control. We should be grateful for those and humble enough to know that we didn't achieve it all on our own. We need to understand the historical barriers that have prevented many, particularly black families, from accessing opportunities that benefited your family decades ago. Consider the impact of these over generations and how hard it can be to overcome them. Celebrate those who have succeeded and help find ways to combat the barriers going forward. Secondly, I think there needs to be some honest and, and really frankly hard discussion about what we need to do to address wealth and income disparities in our country. I'm not talking about a move towards socialism, I'm talking about a way to free up all of the opportunity that our democratic society and our economic system can offer and finding ways to remove the remaining barriers to those who want and can take advantage of these opportunities. But I was really struck as I prepared for this uh, podcast at the statistic that I talked about earlier. The fact that we have so many families in our country with zero or negative net worth, again, as I said earlier, 25% of black families and 10% of white families should concern us all. Thanks, Steve. I think especially the fact that it was white people over and over again who contributed to the problem and who actually set up barriers over and over and over again um, with redlining and the GI Bill specifically, as we've discussed, both with just so many other ways during Jim Crow era um, that kept black people from advancing and from accumulating wealth. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Marla. It was a pleasure. Please join me next time when I begin to discuss the very controversial topic of critical race theory. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.